Puritan podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad you're here. Give you, I got you a free sticker. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually shipping those in all of our boxes now. It's just a way to get the word out. Yeah. To people. Yeah. So you, um, well, I want to get to your personal kind of life and background, but there's a question I, I'm really interested in asking you uh, because I've heard you preach, I think at least once. What is the greatest threat facing the Reformed Church today? Well, starting out with a heavy question. Yeah, let's just go to bat. Um, and this is in your opinion. In my opinion. Yeah. Hmm. That's a, that's a heavy question. Because you've pastored a couple churches in Oregon, mm-hmm. which is, has a reputation. Yeah. Uh, the state, I mean. Mm-hmm. or at least certain parts of it. You're now here in Grand Rapids, which has uh, been considered kind of a hub of sure. Reformed Christianity, but so you, you've seen some things. I would say what I perceive, and I, I wouldn't say this maybe is narrowed to the church, but I think the church and Christians are going to have to deal with it, is the subject of authority. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that I would articulate that many of the issues of our day come down to issues of authority and are actually attacks against authority, whether it be in the home or the church or the government, that all of the contemporary, not all, but many of the contemporary issues come down to says who, by what authority. The church faces this in a significant way because when there's a breakdown of authority in the home, it carries over into the church. I pastored in Oregon for 12 years, approximately, and the issue that we faced repeatedly and continuously was even the conception of church membership. There was an absolute backlash aversion, despising of the concept of church membership. Uh, I would say, tell people that every single person that came to the church, whether a new convert or coming from a different church, when confronted with the concept of church membership, was offensive. Because of the accountability, because of the nature of commitment, and I say in a lot of ways that the Pacific Northwest is kind of on the cutting edge of that issue. I would always describe it as these are people in their heritage who uh, crossed the ocean, landed on the East Coast, uh, kept going west, crossed the Mississippi River, crossed the Rocky Mountains, and went as far as the way as they could uh, to Oregon, and to establish their autonomy and to be separate, to do what they wanted to do. And that's not conducive to church life. That's not conducive to authority and somebody outside of you, the individual, having authority to speak into and hold you accountable to something. 
And so a lot of the challenges in pastoral ministry come down to people's aversion or refusing to submit to any level of authority outside of themselves. Uh, the contemporary issues are the individual is sovereign. And so we have a, a country, at least, where individual gods are running around sovereign, at least in their mind, over their lives, butting into each other. And so as they butt into each other, there's inevitable conflict, and they're each expecting the other to bow to them and to their demands and to their wishes and to their truth and to their perspective, and that you need to conform to what I say. And if not, there's consequences. And so that, to me, seems to be the overarching challenge of our day of, of healthy displays of authority in the home and in the church that will also carry over into the government. That would be my assessment of it. You use the word authority, and I, I wonder if, um, if that... Well, I don't wonder. I, I think I probably have observed that the word itself has quite a bad taste for people mm -hmm. uh, these days. Mm -hmm. And you know, we can, you can blame it on us being in a postmodern society or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's like I was trying to explain to my kids the other day, it's, it goes deeper than just, oh, now we're in the postmodern era. Right. Uh, era. It's um, trying to make it really simple for them. I said, well, look, it's like this. Because we've been having this, they're in public school, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about the school thing soon with you because I know you've mm -hmm. um, founded and are still principal, I believe, of a of charter some school. charter schools. Yeah. Um, and the way I explain it to my kids is this very kind of simple paradigm, which is for the world today, well, especially the Western world, it's um, my truth mm -hmm. is the truth. But as Christians, we believe that it's the opposite. The truth mm -hmm. is my truth. You know, the capital T truth. Mm -hmm. So I, this word authority that you're using, I, I totally agree with you, but um, it's an authority, you would agree, I assume, that appeals to that truth or is founded upon that truth? Or, or is there also a, a, a personal aspect to that? Well, approaching it theologically, all authority comes from God. And God has established spheres of authority, the home, the church, and the state. And, you know, I have a lot of children, and, um, you know, it's, raising children is a complex endeavor. What I would simplify it to is two principles that I'm trying to teach my children. Well, there's a lot else that goes into it, but there are two things I'm really trying to make sure that I don't miss. For younger children, less than 12, teaching them to submit to authority, teaching them no. Dad said no. And to do so with a good attitude. Dad said no. Um, that's the nature of honor your mother and father. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, that it may go well with you. Children today, I think, struggle with who can tell me what to do? Who can tell me no? And so if my children learn that, 
they're going to learn to deal with authority in other areas. A job, a school, uh, the government, the church. They learn that there's authority that God has given. And I'm not a perfect father. I make a lot of mistakes, but uh, I have to command my children to understand no. Uh, If they can learn that lesson as a child, many of their problems are going to go away. Not all of them, but it's teaching them submission to God. And if they learn that as a child, it will go well with them. You know, this is why my children, part of it is the labor shortage, but part of it is because my children know how to take instruction or orders, they never lack for a job. People are, hey, uh, <laughs> looking for, you know, my neighbors come over, hey, do you got any kids old enough to work? Uh, well, here's what we got. <laughs> uh you got 12 of them. Yeah, and so they never lack for work. They go in, interview, get the job. You know, uh, Like I said, part of that's a labor shortage, but in teaching children to submit to authority, they'll be a good employee. Mm. They're okay with a boss telling them. As a boss, I've had employees with master's degrees show up to the first day of work and assign them a task and come back, and they're doing something entirely different. And just kind of look at them and say, like, what are you doing? Well, I didn't want to do that anymore. I thought this looked more fun. But you're not legally even able to do that job. You know, that's those are student records. You're not able to deal with those. Mm. And just I've had, again, employees with master's degrees, first day, uh, lunch break, leave, leave a note. I went to get a sweater out of my car, leave, and never come back. Like, <laughs> you just you're dumbfounded of where did you go? What are you doing? Um, and then you know, like the ability to receive feedback, constructive criticism, coaching, mentoring—you name it. If you can't learn to submit to somebody over you, you really become a monster. You become your own god, and it, and life is hard. Hmm. I said two principles. The the second principle, as they become teenagers. Um, is to learn the correlation between responsibility and privileges. That if you can submit to authority, well, then your privileges are correlated to your responsibility. And the more responsibility you can take on, the more privileges you get. That's really a lot of what being an adult is, is that I know how to correlate those for myself. So I'm not taking the privilege without the responsibility. That's the essence of what debt is. I want the privilege, but I don't want the responsibility. I don't have the money to pay for it, so I'm going to borrow it. That's the essence of what relationships outside of marriage. I would like the privilege of a relationship without the responsibility of marriage or children. Uh, I would like to buy things on a credit card, but I don't want to have to pay for them. And an adult learn, understands that concept, that if I do the work, I get the privilege that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. And so much of life is going to teach them that. I'm just trying to give them a head start, that if you make your bed, clean your room, I can, I'll feed you. <laughs> and you know, if you go to work and do a good job, they'll pay you. And if you take on and absorb responsibility, they'll pay you more. 
you know, and you can find other jobs and it'll open doors for you. And so apart from spiritual things, this challenge in our society with authority, I want to teach them to be able to rule themselves and to delayed gratification that I don't have to have everything right now. I can delay. Um, like one of my sons is uh, just graduated working a job and his, his nephews or his uh, cousins are dumbfounded that he doesn't have a cell phone plan yet. Like they're just exasperated. Why would he not? Cause I don't want that payment. What do I need a phone for? Who am I calling? Who needs to hear from me? You know, um, and so he's happy just using the Internet at home. You know, my boss lives next door, so I can walk over there and talk to him if I need to. And, you know, just being a good steward is some of the biblical language of it, but realizing that, yeah, I need to correlate these, these two in my life. And the more I can do that, doing it what do you need you don't need dad any longer a lot of parenting teenagers is helping correlate those two things because life is going to do it and they're going to be harder on them did is this um are these principles things that you picked up along the way in your own journey through life or was this instilled in you through dad grandparents what's the reason i'm asking you this is because I, I mean, I think likewise, I was raised, well, I don't know your background yet, mm-hmm. but I was raised um, in a context where my dad put a lot of emphasis on work ethic, mm-hmm. including in athletics. So I was either on the football pitch, uh, in the weight room, or uh, fixing barbed wire fence and uh, grading hills with a shovel, <laughs> yeah. you know. Hard work, but good work. And um, it's not that it's not that my dad couldn't have hired some guys to do that work, but he wanted his sons to learn, well, to get calloused hands. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's benefited me my whole life. Even though in the in the moment, it was so hard, and I just didn't like my dad very much. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was he and I have an amazing relationship because of the fact that he, uh, he was such a good example. But, um, so, I mean, so what is it for you? Because it sounds like the way that you're talking about this, you've obviously thought about it a lot. You're obviously putting it into practice and you've had 12 great opportunities to do that mm-hmm. with each of your kids. Plus the kids that have been part of the charter schools, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what is it? Well, I, I, it just kind of developed over time, probably of seeing where opportunity was um, and where there was, in dealing with employees um, and being a boss, it's a different layer of dealing with people and understanding what makes a good employee and what makes a bad one. What's somebody you love and 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 appreciate and give raises and bonuses to and who are the people you end up firing you know what what, what's the connecting link and you know that ability people who take on responsibility 
I always would look for teachers who had a balance of relational and responsible, that they know how to work, but they also know how to be a, interact with people. Um, I picked up principles from a book, um, a Jack Welch book on winning, and it was he used the, the principles of humble, hungry, and smart. And that was my philosophy in hiring people is if they are humble, they're a blessing to work with mm. because they will receive feedback. They can handle success. They get along well with coworkers. They interact with parents and students well. Um, if they're hungry and they're self-motivated, that goes a long way um, because they're already looking for solutions. They're already wanting to get better. Uh, I have a hard time dealing with people who are not motivated because uh, I'm not a motivational speaker. That's not my leadership style. And so it was always a challenge for me is if you're motivated, we can get there, you know, um, if you're hungry. But if you don't really want to come to work and you don't really want to work and you're just struggling to work, like, my goodness, we're... Uh, I can do this. Just why don't you step aside and we'll find somebody else or I'll do that job. Um, and then the smart is, uh, some of it is intelligence, but um, it's really relational intelligence, um, understanding people, understanding what's appropriate, what isn't, and not aff being offensive to people. And if you have people who have all three of those, that's a good long-term employee. If you have people who have two of those, you can work with them in the other area. So it's, a lot of it is about development. If they have one of them, it's really a struggle. It's really a struggle. Um, those are usually the people that we didn't retain. If they have none of them, then you really messed up in the interview process. You didn't vet. You didn't know what you were looking for. And you often have to fire them because mm -hmm. they're just... And usually if they have one of them, depending on how bad it is, you you may have to terminate them because they just create problems. Um, but if they have two of them, they're usually a solid employee. If they have all three of them, they're they're a foundational piece you can build with, mm -hmm. and uh, that has just served me very well. Um, those principles. So I would say that's kind of how I learned it. You know, I remember working a job one time where they had a sign at the water cooler. It was a Thomas Edison quote that said. Most people miss opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Um, and in our society, man, there's opportunity everywhere. You know, sometimes I think, man, I could live three more lifetimes because there's so many opportunities everywhere if you're just willing to work. So as far as parenting goes, yes, my kids know dad expects work. You know, because of that, in the summertime, they'll avoid me. <laughs> you know, there's enough of them. Just stay out of dad's purview because he's going to be working on something. Um, but just, you know, trying to teach them. And this is where uh, what I try to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty uh, tight with money, so I have to, you know, crack open the wallet sometimes that if they're willing to work, that compensate them. Let them get a taste of, well, that felt good. I worked hard, but I also got paid. Um, you know, and so I have children who have a diversity of skill sets. So I'm just trying to help them find things they're good at and enjoy that they could, that's a marketable skill 
and you know kind of find their path in life and um so yeah like i said those principles um the older i get the more i enjoy work when i was a kid i didn't enjoy work i liked to play i played sports basketball football baseball i liked fishing i liked hunting i liked golf i you know just entertainment and seeking happiness and that was probably one of the major turning points in my life in college of just I didn't have the term, but pursuing pleasure um, and experiencing success and it not satisfying. And my misery was growing. And I just uh, kept coming back to, and I had a, there was a particular day, I don't really remember all what led up to it. I just remember coming home from class one day in college, went to Central Michigan. And, and realizing, man, I have tried everything I know to be happy, and I'm still miserable. What is the problem? Um, Were you it, a Christian? I was a Christian, yeah. but, uh, you know, not serious about it. Yeah. Um, you know, go to church, but, uh, you know, very, try to read my Bible, but mm-hmm. not real committed. Um, and I, I just, it was an emotional where I was just done. Like, Lord, I, I have tried everything I know to be happy and I'm miserable. I don't know what you want me to do. Whatever you want me to do, you just let me know. That's what we're going to do. And I, I just praying and said, I know you want me to read my Bible and go to church. That's what I'm going to do. If you want me to do anything else, you just let me know. Um, and that's just what I did. I, I'm a very stubborn person by nature, but he brought me to that place where you're in charge and I, I'm done trying to find, find happiness. And, you know, that just became my life. I sold my boat, sold my golf club, sold all my stuff, and we're going to read our Bible, we're going to go to church, and we're going to finish class. And um, that was a, a significant where God became very actively i was you know he's always involved in my life but i became much more aware of his involvement providentially in my life and really trying to live by faith and seeking him and how do i please him and um it was a lot of the principles like you know john piper might espouse or or teach that i had i didn't have terms for it i just knew god was working on me in these areas and uh that that was yeah significant turning point so you sold your your boat, sold your clubs, but you're still a, a guy who enjoys getting outdoors and well, because I'm an all or nothing. So at that time it was all. Right. And I just needed a break yeah. from that. Yeah. I needed to mortify that because it was idolatrous mm-hmm. in my life. It was consuming and just needed a significant break. And so it was several years of that as I was, you know attending a Bible institute, getting much more involved in church life. Um, And basically, my dad and I used to go fishing together, so if he wanted to go fishing, we'd go fishing. If he wanted to go hunting, I'd go hunting with him. Um, But I tried to make it more relational and with people than just me trying to win, me trying to accomplish, me trying to catch something or whatever, Mm. and to have other redeeming purposes but because I was, my personality is so obsessive 
when I lock onto something, I have to be careful about, you know, temperance wasn't real strong in my life, I guess is how I would say it. Yeah. Do you feel like you've come to a better place with temperance? Or is it still a, a struggle of it's life? It's still a struggle. The, the struggle usually manifests itself on vacation. Okay. I, I, I struggle with vacation. Um, in what way? Like wanting because, to get back to the work? or just... Well, because when I'm doing work, I'm very busy, and I know what I need to do, and I, I really enjoy productivity. Mm-hmm. And that can become a god as well or an idol. Um, but I get into a, a rhythm and priorities, and I have my day, and I'm, you know, trying to make sure I'm, and I have some momentum, and things are going, and then you take vacation, and you stop all that, and now you're thinking, now what do I want to do on vacation, and just that turn, (laughs) uh, which my wife would say, well, just make it about what I want to do, and then we don't, you know, (laughs) uh, and so I have to be very careful, because once I turn that corner, it can, you know, I get into recreation and entertainment and um, it makes it, uh, it's not satisfying. Mm. And it's just like being caught in no man's land where um, I have a hard time enjoying something if I'm not good at it. Why do this? I'm not, I didn't catch any fish. I didn't go out there just to sit out on a lake. You know, I want to catch fish. Um so that's the tension that I feel. And then all that work is still piling up, you know, when I get back. And so I have found that even on my vacation, I like a different work. <laughs> and, 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 and so I have to, you know, work through that because, like, I will take on a remodel project, uh, a rental house or some, you know, something that, is productive, and I find more joy in getting that done and working with the kids. And you know, of course, they like to tell stories about how bad it was and how terrible. You know, um, you mean but, the, the the final product or the process? Oh, uh, the process, yeah. the final product. And they're like, "Oh, well, I guess that wasn't as bad," but they still like to tell stories about their dad. So, um, <laughs> but obviously, rest is a good, a healthy, appropriate thing. But that's where I sense the struggle mm-hmm. is I don't feel like I've hit my stride on vacation well. Um, I try to uh, probably defer to my wife more on that and let her kind of navigate. It's more family-centered um, and, and, and try to just go along with her, trust her judgment on it a little more than my own. Um, because once I get in there, I can mess it up and, you know, I'm selfish by nature. And that's, you know, like I said, when you go on vacation, you're thinking, well, what do I want to do? Yeah. And just opening that door on a daily basis, I try not to live there. You know, what do I want to do today? Um, so it's just, that's just the challenge. So, um, it's hard. I, I, the way that I've, I think I'm a lot like you in terms of always wanting to be producing mm-hmm. and doing and learning or whatever it is, but not stagnant. Mm-hmm. And um, not that vacation is being stagnant, but it can feel like that for me. Mm-hmm. Is, okay, you know, what are we doing? 
Yeah. What, what's going to be done here that I can look at and see that there's yeah. progress. And can I go to sleep tonight thinking, yeah, okay, I accomplished something. Mm-hmm. The way that I've met, kind of managed that whole thing is just taking a camera everywhere. Mm-hmm. But that's a hobby of mine too. Yeah. It's what I do for work as well is kind of, you know, I, I just have it. Sometimes it's like I need to put the camera down too because it mm-hmm. can get a bit excessive, but it's just a way to feel like I'm doing something with my time beyond just sitting at a pool yeah. or hanging out by the river or whatever it is. I try to make it relational mm-hmm. because that's not my nature. I'm, I'm high on the responsible. Yeah. And my wife yeah. is very high on the relational. And so I always tell her a lot, any success I've had is because of her teaching me relational things that I didn't have by nature mm-hmm. and understanding people better and more. But when it comes to vacation or time off, I try to consciously think of how to engage the kids in this. And I have to be careful because they can be, you know, I don't want them to just work on vacation. So I want to try to balance that, you know, the whole work-life balance thing, the vacation work balance thing. Um, I want it to be enjoyable for them. Um, you know, but our society's lost their mind when it comes to pleasure. So everything is pleasure. And so trying to write the ship on that as a father and navigate that and try to help create some balance, you know, uh, Kids aren't always going to appreciate it in the moment, but trying to balance that. And so, like, you know, if we are working on a project, well, let's go fishing in the evening or in the morning, or let's, you know, go get ice cream or or try to contribute something that they can enjoy it and not do it all day, you know, the duration of it. And like I said, it's still a work in progress. Um, but I'm, uh, just trying to work that direction and, uh, my dad has passed away. So that whole, that aspect of it is kind of, I find myself not gravitating to it as much, but now I have children who do like some of those things. And so trying to recalibrate how to do that well, <clears throat> kind of what I'm bumbling through. What kind of work do you have your kids doing? Is it, is, is it? Stuff that you initiate, I mean, uh, beyond like chores. Yeah, I always, you know, their basic chores is I expect them or, and try to work with them to make your bed, clean your room. That's yeah. your that's your baseline expectation before you come to breakfast, before, before you come to or you fa- don't eat. family worship or, yeah, that's your responsibility. Yeah. And from there, my wife will have various chores of, you know, things, one will take, you know, has the trash and one has the kitchen and, you know, and she'll rotate them and she manages that, you know, I'm more the enforcer is usually what it boils down to. But then I, you know, and when they're in school, that takes a chunk of their day and and they're in music or sports and different things and church life. So, but like in the summer, I usually always have something going on on the side, maybe two or three things. And so I try to find accessible things that they can do, and it'll be a positive experience, a win, I call it. So like we're doing a boat remodel project. Um, You know, my 
son who just graduated likes to fish and we found a boat on Craigslist for 350 bucks, um, but needs some sweat equity put into it. But it's work that even the little boys can get involved in to a certain level. Hey, that bolt needs to come off. Why don't the two of you work together and get that bolt off? And, of course, they'll argue and fight, and it's an opportunity to try to work them through that. And But I want them to taste like, okay, we worked on that, but that's that looks good. I like that. And I want to give them a positive experience. And sometimes it takes them a while. We had a house, you know, my kids love to tell the story. I bought a tax foreclosure house up in the UP for $5,000. And it was a hot mess. I mean, it was a hot mess. Um, structurally was sound, but inside it was just trashed. And so it was a thousand square foot house and we removed 4,000 pounds of trash out of it. Yeah. Um, but I saw that it had hardwood floors underneath it. So I thought, well, you get this trash out, we can bleach everything. We can, you know, and so we spent, they had one room upstairs. One of the bedrooms was the dog room and they just let the dog go in there. And so it was absolutely, you couldn't step in that room without stepping on feces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we waited till December, till it was frozen. And we just went up and rolled the carpet up because it had wood floor underneath it and <laughs> took out a big stink burrito to the dump. And um, well, then we went up there, the, just the boys and I worked on that. And then we were going to go clean it. And my kids, you know, they really, you know, they like to tell stories, make dad look bad, um, you know, about how bad it was. But then I sold it and, you know, sold it for 20 and we basically put a few days work into it. And so you could see their wheels turning. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. What? What did you? Well, I could do that. You mean you, you know. And so, like, even they had participated in that process. Like, even my eleven-year-old, um, like, what did you sell that for? You know, he's doing the math. Mm -hmm. You know, you could just see the wheels turning. Um, and so, yeah, just trying to find attainable projects that they can do. Um, and sometimes they just go and, uh, like, I've been working on one on time off um, up north cabin type property and and the I took the boys and they're just playing with sticks and playing war and and hitting trees with sticks and while I'm working doing different things and you know then go out and get ice cream you know but just getting them around it and then one of my the oldest son was helping me and you know just trying to get them around it that this is just normal life that we do things like this and mm. So yeah, it's like I said. I wouldn't say I'm. Uh, I have a lot of room to grow in that. You know, I, I try to be conscious conscious of a balance, um, and not getting too far out of you know overemphasizing things. Um, and obviously, I'm not great at that, but it's what wives are for, and you know, they help calibrate that a little bit better. Yeah, have you? Have you built some of this um, emphasis on work into the charter schools that you started? Um, a little bit. I try to teach the principles, some of the principles we've talked about, to the teachers. Mm. 
so that they translate them themselves to the students. But a little, it's a little harder reach um, to get all the way downstream to the kids. Uh, what we try to do at that level is help them find things that they can do, um, extracurricular project stuff, shop, woodwork, music, find something they have an interest and ability where if they put effort into it, they can experience a win. Mm -hmm. uh, that would say, I would say that's probably how I've tried to be downstream working and influencing families, um, try to instill a love for learning. I see that as a huge issue is that we don't enjoy learning. And so school is just something you do to get a job so you make money to do what you want to do. And we don't appreciate reading. You know, I would say readers are leaders. You, you want to cultivate the habit of reading. And, you know, I think the, the popularity of Google, where you can find facts and answers to any question, um, why do I need to read and understand it? Well, but there's a limit to what that is, you know, and learning builds on itself. And especially with the dynamic of our world today, things are rapidly changing with technology and being ahead of that learning curve, um, you know, without making it an end all, but just trying to cultivate a love for learning and finding catalysts and curiosity and how to stimulate that and fuel that with students so that they enjoy learning and it's not just a drudgery. And that's a challenge for every child. Uh, we focused on um, what is called personalized learning for the individual student. So we try to personalize education to them. Um, different kids learn at different speeds, have interest in different subjects. So how to customize a plan for that individual student I realize a little bit that's catering to the autonomy. Uh, and so there's a, you know, you don't want to go too absolute in that because you are going to have to learn some things you don't want to or don't come natural to you. I think that cultivates humility that, wow, I can't do this or this is very hard for me, but then this student does that well. That's okay. Um, so, yeah, just trying to, you know, infiltrate and, and create a love for learning. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of pessimism in our day. I, I look at it and say, we are living at the greatest time in all of history. Who has, who has it so good as we have it? In the sense of modern medicine, technology, quality of life, Reformation Heritage books? I mean, what subject do you want to learn about and know about that you can't have access to everything that's been written on this subject? Air travel? Who, who in history has had it this good? The freedoms that we have, I realize those may be eroding, <clears throat> but what a wonderful, I mean, do-it-yourself projects? You can go on Amazon and find that piece and that part that you need to fix this yourself. You can watch a YouTube video on how to do it. Like, 
if you are willing to work, what can't you do? What, what career can't you pursue? What opportunity can you not? Um, and this is why I say when I see people who have just, if you don't have that hunger to go work, well, then you're just waiting for somebody to do it for you. Um, and so the combination of that, I, I just want to create an enthusiasm. That, look around. <laughs> what we, the goodness of God everywhere and the blessings that he loads on us daily, you know, because I can be pessimistic by nature, but the, the goodness of God and the providence of God and the blessing of God everywhere, it just, you know, trying to instill that um, into minds and hearts. I, I just, you know, I mean, Abraham was a rich man. Job was a rich man. He didn't have a fraction of the things that we enjoy. Fraction. If we can't be grateful and content and worshipful, who can? I realize sometimes those work against each other, but um, you know, learning contentment, what a great gain. If you can learn godliness with contentment, great gain. Um so just trying to you know instill those virtues and character traits, um, but I just you know I had a friend one time he made the statement that maybe these are the good old days. He said that years ago and it just stuck with me, like right these are the good old days. Like what is so bad? And I, I just think people um, can have a cloud hanging over them. And I, like I said, I just see opportunity everywhere. I see opportunity for my kids, opportunity for myself. Just like, man, there's look what we could do with this. Um, it's such a, it's such a refreshing perspective because spend any time today on Twitter or any national news. I don't, I don't do that. Good for you, <laughs> good for you. Or, or even just have you know overhear conversations from yeah. people out and about, and everyone seems to be in crisis mode. Yeah, like the you know, the chicken little, like the world is, the world is ending, the world is ending. And, um, or if it's not so negative, it's this constant push towards this kind of obscure utopia that is mm-hmm. not well-defined. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to overcome the, the, the filth of the modern era kind of a thing. It's, it paints this very dystopian picture yeah. of the, of today which is the total opposite of what you've been saying, um, with this vision of like a heavenly future yeah. that we need to press towards. Well, if you think about, um, like I read this morning, uh, Daniel 4, God rules over the kings of the earth, even Nebuchadnezzar. That whole scene where he has a dream where the tree is cut down and leaves mm-hmm. a stump and he's going to go eat grass like an ox and grow feathers like a bird so God can show nobody's going to take your throne for seven years and then I'm going to put you back on that throne that you may know that there is a God in heaven who's running things. And so I obviously the morality of our times is, you know, declining. Um, so, I, you know, it's not a blind optimism or a blind, you know, whatever. But at the same time, 
I want to have the same perspective that God has. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands frustrated at the government, wondering what we're going to do. He's just and right. He sin is sin. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't cover over it and pretend like everything is perfect. This isn't the this isn't the the resurrection. This isn't the new heaven and the new earth. So I don't want to overrealize eschatology. But at the same time, if God's not frustrated, I shouldn't be frustrated. I can call sin sin and good good and you know, etc. But at the end of the day, he's not he's not Fox News or CNN stirring up. He is he is in heaven laughing at their opposition, mocking. And I don't need to be all in a twist because, you know, a a certain view of life that I had isn't coming to fruition. Um, And so I I just, you know, try to think about how does, how is God viewing what's going on? Well, this is his providence. I came across years ago, I think it was Bunyan, who made this statement, God's providence is my inheritance. Mm. I just latched onto that. That God is, He is, if you really believe that God is actively involved in everything, everything, you know, the catechism, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. He's in control. That's my inheritance. Should I despise that? Does he know what's going on? He does. I don't have to try to meet some external standard outside of him. What does he want me to do today? And he's pleased with my effort. You know, obviously it's marred by sin, but ultimately I'm just trying to, if I'm trying to please him, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what we're going to do. If we do that, if you mess up, fess up, bow low, make it right. Go on. You know, don't live in the regret of that. Um, but just embracing that this is God. I, I remember hearing Dr. Beakey say this at a difficult time in my life. Preached a message, I think, related to God's providence. Of uh, His points were something like, this is God. This thing in your life, this is God. And it's good. And I will praise him for it. Mm. You know, Ephesians 5, giving thanks in all things. Everything is an act of worship. All of life. God is providentially working in everything. And he's got 7 billion people living in absolute hostility against him. And he is not frustrated. He is not overwhelmed. He's not discouraged. He's not... He's executing his plan to perfection. And what a wonderful, glorious doctrine to embrace in providence. Um, Yeah, and so just trying to live that out in reality, you know, today, um, you know, when I'm in traffic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. It reminds me of, I'm sure you're familiar with Jocko Willink, the former Mm -hmm. Navy SEAL, does leadership stuff and all that. Mm-hmm. But he's got this, he's got this great quote which is one word, 
good. Mm -hmm. And it's the attitude that you take when you're in the midst. Like someone comes to you complaining, oh, you know, this horrible thing's happening. And oh, the, or if you're, if something's really physically hard and difficult and challenging and oh, my legs are burning, I'm climbing up this. Good. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, good. And I, I'm not saying Jocko is saying it in the same, mm -hmm. with the same theological understanding sure. that Joel Beakey says it. Yeah, right. It, but I like that Joel says it too. Yeah. Be, because we can't say that sin is good, mm -hmm. but we can say that God is good and, and sovereign. And so in a way, we can say in any situation, good. Well, and if you embrace that, what can I complain about? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just do the logical deduction, if this is God's providence... And it's my inheritance. And he's brought this into my life. What, can I complain about that? Well, then how, to push back a little bit on that, because we spent a lot of time reading the Psalms as a family, because mm -hmm. our kids are still relatively young. And there's, there is a lot of a pleas and, mm -hmm. you know, P-L-E-A-S, and um, lament. Mm-hmm. And even complaining, it would look like. So, how do we reconcile that with? Well, I think also acknowledging the yeah, sovereignty of God. I don't know that I can solve the mystery, but how I am in the process of working that out is to say, I can be honest with God. Mm -hmm. I can. I, that's what I see when I read the Psalms. Like, I don't have to pretend like God doesn't know, doesn't care is disinterested, but I can pour out my soul to him, and he knows. He, he knows I'm struggling with this. I don't like this. That, you know, that doesn't have to be, that can be done in faith, but I'm going to be honest with God. And that, that's why I say, like, if we are trying to find his perspective in the city, he knows exactly what's going on. If you... And for much of my life, I just didn't practically believe that. Hmm. Like, I, if you'd have asked the question on a test, I would have agreed to it. But practically, experientially, didn't really embrace that. And if you embrace that, that's why, like I said, I, I pick up sayings that are, God's providence is my inheritance. I have to preach that to myself. Because I don't always feel that. I don't always like it. But I can be honest with God and say, I really don't like this. This is terrible. This seems, you know, I want to complain. I want to have a bad attitude. I want to pout. I want to do all these things. But you're good. And you have said you are going to use this together for good. And I remember years ago hearing an Adrian Rogers sermon on the radio. And he, he made a statement when I was kind of wrestling with this. The will of God for your life is what you would do if you were God. If you knew all that God knows, you would do what God does. Well, you don't have to be an intellectual stalwart to embrace that concept. Now, experientially living that out is messy. But if I knew everything that God knows... I would do what he does. So why don't we just go with that? You know, we've all had that person. I was talking to an electrician recently, and he was saying he was helping, a, I think it was his father-in-law on a project, and 
his father-in-law acknowledged, I need your help because I don't really know what I'm doing with electricity, you know. And so they get into the project, and and he's, the electrician says, you know, well, here's what we need to do. And the guy said, yeah, I don't think that's right. And he said, so I just packed up my tools and left. Hmm. And he turned around, and he, this is not a Christian guy. But he said, where, where are you going? He says, well, you told me you don't know what you're doing, but then you're going to turn around and tell me I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm not needed here. And I, I just thought about, you know, reflecting on that is God has never made a mistake. It's not possible for him to make a mistake. The height of insanity would be to not listen to him and to not obey him and follow him. If he is perfect and right and good, what other option is there? Me? Um, and like I said, I I have to, this is the daily struggle. I'm not saying I live, but conceptually, if I can just wrap my head around that, that's game changer. That, 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 that changes every decision. If every decision comes down to, Lord, what do you want me to do? I don't know. What do I, what do I know? Mm-hmm. I mean, how many decisions have I made thinking I knew all the given information and one variable changes and my thoughts are completely off? Why wouldn't I defer to the one who not only knows everything but has always known everything, cannot learn anything? Because he's immutable, he can't change in his understanding. His understanding is infinite. If we have access to that, to not tap into that would be the height of folly, just absolutely unbelievable folly, that we have an infinite, all-wise, and all-powerful. It would be one thing if he had all the answers and just couldn't do it, but he has all the answers and all the power. How about we just get on board with that? Um, And like I said, I... By all means, you can ask my wife. I don't live that out perfectly, but conceptually, that's what I'm trying to do in my life, trying to instill on my children. That, that the way that, that the, this is the path of blessing, that if you honor your mother and father, you fear the Lord, it's the path of blessing. doesn't mean there's not going to be trial, but you can trust that every trial, you know, what's the, the Puritan... Behind the you know the dark cloud is a smiling providence. Mm. Behind every dark cloud is a William Cooper. I'm not sure where, um, and just embracing that by faith, growing in that, you know, because I think <clears throat> a lot of faith to me, as I define, which is a very abstract term, faith has to have an object. I'm trusting the Word of God. A, a game changer for me was I'm trusting the providence of God. Mm which is the same as trusting that's what God is. That's, how he, that's who he is. He, that's what his government is, trusting him. What does that mean on a daily basis? I'm trusting his providence, that nobody is doing anything outside of his knowledge and control and decree. Mm-hmm. So I'm living in this. Let's do it. Outside of Scripture itself, well, we could mention some key passages too, but this emphasis on providence for people that are listening and it, or if someone was to come to you and say, Pastor John, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I'm familiar. 
maybe somewhat with the term of provi- term providence theologically, what mm-hmm. it means. But faith in providence, like what what books or resources are you going to recommend to that person? Well, I gave you the definition from the catechism, and it's hard to improve on. Start there. Start there. Yeah. Um, and the mystery of providence, was it by Flavel? Uh-huh. Um, uh, they break it down so well. And it, it's, it's not conceptually like this. I mean, we're not talking about um, divine simplicity or some of these higher. Mm-hmm. This is so practical and accessible, especially as the Puritans break it down for us, is conceptually grasping this concept and saying, yeah, that, I, need to, I need to live that out. That, that's going to be a struggle. How is this concept of providence, as you would define it, different from, I would say, what kind of broader evangelicalism is presenting to their people as... Um, How do we say it? Well, just simply the concept of a saving God. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it requires a big God. Uh, You know, the the whole kind of issue between transcendence and imminence, that God is transcendent over all things. Well, Mm -hmm. we can believe that. But then we struggle with, but then he's numbers the hairs on my head, Mm -hmm. the imminence. Or we can believe that God is involved in my life, but he's not big. So the balance of those two doctrines, that God is transcendent over all his creatures and all their actions. And, you know, this is where the problem of evil and all these... I'm not much of a philosopher to solve or even get into all of those things. Um, But just accepting... And this is why, like I said, when I was in college... And I have this turning point. I had went through this process with selling a boat, and I had this boat out for sale for all summer out by the road. You know, this is before Craigslist and Marketplace and just a little for sale sign. Just a for sale sign out in front of the house. From I mean, we're talking like April to October. I didn't have one person look at that boat. And that's all through fishing season, that's too. That's like, <laughs> and so it got close, closer to winter, and I thought, well, I better winterize this thing. Mm-hmm. And I pull it around back, back of the house, and I had, uh, I had one more semester of college left, but God was working in my life. And I listened, I was a finance major at CMU, and listened to Larry Burkett and Money Matters and Debt is Bad and, and I'm thinking, I'm not going into debt. And so I had 12 credits left. I signed up for them. But then the deadline was coming on Monday to pay for your classes or they drop you. And I didn't have any money. And I thought, well, Lord, if you want me to go to college, you're going to have to take care of this because I'm not going in debt. So I kind of thought I had God on, you know, in a box or on the edge or whatever. And so there's snow on the ground in November. And somebody stops at the house and knocks on the door and says, and so this is like Friday, maybe Saturday. And said, and the, the tuition is due Monday. And so I'm like, well, if I don't have to go to class, well, I guess we'll, it is what it is. 
knocks on the door and says, didn't you have a boat for sale out here this mm. summer? Do you still have that? I said, yeah, it's out back behind the garage. Can I take a look at it? Sure. So he wanted to take it for a test drive. I said, I'll take it, you know, just bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, well, there's one lake here that doesn't have ice on it. That's the time. I mean, we're kind of almost early December here. So he takes it out, and he comes back, and he gives me $4,500. Just like that. And I just stood there in the driveway as he pulled away, stunned and and crying. Yeah. Because yeah. it was like this was the first step of faith where I just trusted what God, a principle that he says, and let him deal with it. Mm. And I just thought, why have I not been doing this my whole life? You know, that's not name it. That's just, Lord, say, what do you want me to do? It's not prosperity gospel at all. It's, what do you want me to do? Yeah. You don't want me to go into a bunch of debt. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to honor you. Let me know what you want me to do. That's what we're going to do. And I, I just, I stood there for probably five minutes. And it's cold out. And I'm just standing there just like God is involved in my life. Because this, you couldn't manufacture manufacture i tried to sell this thing for months and, and the, this guy who buys a boat in michigan in december like or end of november i don't remember the dates but and i just thought there is a god in heaven who is involved in my life hmm. and so yeah just embracing that reality you know matthew 6 that the very hairs of your head are numbered I don't know how many hairs are on the, my child's head, but he does. Um, and so that's just one of those liberating, like I said, I don't live this out perfectly, but just trying to embrace God's providence in my life as my inheritance. This is what he's given to me. And why would I complain about that? I should embrace that. And it's good. And it may be a bitter pill, but I can swallow it. You know, and obviously your faith grows as you live that out and you're just trusting what his word says and trying to live it out. And you know, I came across one of my, I had a superintendent I work with. He had a saying, if we mess up, we fess up. Mm. We bow low and we make it right. Mm. Because sometimes we kind of get off track and we just live in this. And another one of my, like I said, I pick up a lot of sayings, but. God doesn't meet us where we're doesn't meet us where we should be. He meets us where we're at. Because I think we can have a mindset that, well, I know I haven't been doing right and I'm kind of way off the trail and I'm gonna get myself back on the trail and then God'll kind of pick it up with me. Yeah. No, you know, it's kind of like uh remember Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> How did we get here under the tree? thinking that I'm the only one left. You know, there's 7,000 that haven't kissed Baal's toe and, and realizing that God meets you where you're at. No matter how big of a mess I can make, he's right there. You know, if I draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to me. Lord, what do you want me to do? And like I said, I have a very stubborn temperament and personality, so I always have an opinion. And and I've you know, in learning to kind of work through the will of God for my life, I have to say, well, what do I want to do? Because if I don't articulate that, 
that will bleed into everything. So you actually articulate what what I could want. be contrary to the well. To I, what I try God to wants. establish here's what I want, mm-hmm. but that's not what I'm trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. But if I can acknowledge that it now, like let's set part. now let's set this over here. Yeah, let's yeah. get this out of the way, because if I don't have that little mental exercise, I can convince myself that God what God wants and what I want are the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I have to consciously say, well, let's put, I know what I want. Yeah. Let's put that over there. Okay, Lord, what do you want? Most of the time, it's not what I want. The, the hardest times to discern is when the will of God aligns with what I want. I don't trust myself because I can, I can play mental gymnastics all day. Um, and I tell people, like, I, I moved, I was in Oregon for eight years in Medford, Southern Oregon, moved back to Michigan, was here three years, and then was at this transition point, and I had only one request. I didn't want to move back to Oregon. Lord, anywhere in the world, China, Africa, South America, California, anywhere but Oregon. And in the providence of God, one door was open. I tried to kick down every door I could find. One door back to Oregon. And I, it just deflated me so bad. You know, when I moved out to Oregon the first time, it was exciting, embraced it. My wife was excited the second time. Oh, no, no, no. Why so hard? Um, a lot of things. Uh, one of the biggest things was... I talked about at the beginning the the rabbit autonomy, individualism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes church life so difficult. So this is pervasive, like Oregonian mentality. Yeah. Like I always tell the story that I starting the school, talk to families after Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Hey, how was your Thanksgiving? And I asked several parents, and I got the same response like five times in a row. It was so good. It was just our family. We stayed home. Like, didn't get with siblings or parents or grandparents. We just stayed. And they said the same words, which it was like striking to me. It was so good. It was just us. No expectation from anybody else. No relationship with anybody else. Just us. And, And it... I. When I moved out there, I didn't have a sense of culture. I thought, they're all Americans. I grew up in Michigan. They're in Oregon. But, you know, Michigan, everybody worked for the automakers on the assembly line. You get in line, you do your duty. Out in Oregon, everybody in the church, I think everybody to a family was self-employed, except maybe a couple, Hmm. two, three exceptions. Uh, We do what we want to do. And so that... You know, I there's a part of me naturally that I'm like that. But then, like I said, when it comes to church life and friends and a lot of other things, it was just no, no. And and I say that because about five years into it, I realized that God blessed that decision more than any other decision I've ever made. And that was very humbling. 
to think the one thing, like literally the one thing, my one request that I don't want because that won't make me happy, ended up being, I say he, he blessed my marriage, got better. My children got better. I had children converted while we were there. I was able to attend seminary. Financially, we prospered. Just every aspect of my life. And I think I was actually driving home back to Michigan when that all hit. As I thought, man, I didn't want to do this. But I felt like Jacob coming back to see Esau. He left by himself, and he comes back with two bands and children and cattle, and you know. Yeah. And I just thought, this is why I can't run my life. <laughs> it's because I don't know, and I'm a sinful, and I have such a shallow perspective, a temporal, immediate perspective. God is infinite, eternal. What else could I do but? but trust him and, and, and know that he knows better than I do. Um, you said so. earlier that um, a good way to think about just how to, how to take the next step forward, let's say, is you think, you know, if, if you were God, what would you do kind of a thing or something along those lines? I would say if I knew what God if knows. you know what he knows, right. Which I don't. Which you, I would do what God does. But there's a problem there, which I'm sure you'll acknowledge, is um, we don't all have a perfect understanding of God. Sure. And I would say that most Christians have a pretty limited understanding mm -hmm. or less than we could have. Mm -hmm. Less than we could have. I think, so, something we're trying to encourage in our kids is reading the Bible and getting more, uh, developing a, a love for the Word. But mm -hmm. it is it is something quite tangible to think of when you can look at Scripture and realize, well, those words aren't changing. Mm -hmm. Not to get into text criticism or all mm -hmm. those fun things we learn about in seminary, but this is the Word. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not being updated like, like a Twitter feed. Right. Or even like we get the Wall Street Journal delivered to our home in print every day because we want the kids to develop Mm -hmm. an understanding of the world around them and critical thinking skills and all that, but also tangible paper mm -hmm. and text and not just be on screens. So, um, but that, that paper comes every day and then it gets thrown in the fire pit right. or recycled, whatever. I had know. a professor in college. He saved every Wall Street Journal for the last 40 years was in his home. Why? Because I mean, he was had, an accounting professor. <laughs> That's just what you do. You might be able to resale those on eBay, yeah. but... Wow. Well, yeah, that's a good question. It's something I think I've worked through. You mentioned your kids and their desire for Scripture. I had a mentor one time who, who said that his number one prayer for his children is that they would love the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And he said, think about how many problems in your life will be solved if that buttonhole is right. I always talk about the buttonhole principle. If you get the first buttonhole in your shirt in the right hole, all the rest of them line up. But if you get that first button in the wrong hole, they just don't ever line up. Mm. And 
And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, if, if my children love the Word of God, they'll love the God of the Word. Mm-hmm. And how does that solve a lot of other problems? Preventative, you name it. And so that has been my daily prayer for my kids, that they will love the Word of God. They can get that. So then to your question about, you know, how much we know about God and, and those type of things, uh, it's a certainly a legitimate question. But here's how I parsed it out in my own understanding. You know, Jesus says in one point, um, let me think of the exact scripture, which of you, if your son asks him a fish, will he give him a stone? And he says, if you being evil, flattering words, if you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So here's what I, how I translate that and break that down practically. If your child came to you and wanted to know an answer, had a question, and you're evil, would you not condescend and meet them where they're at? So if you have an 18-year-old and you have a 7-year-old, they're going to come to you with different questions. But you're going to deal with that 7-year-old at his level. You're going to condescend to him. And you're going to speak in a language he can understand. I believe that God will meet us where we're at. And if we're an infant, God will give us understanding at a level that we can embrace it. And if I'm evil, I would do that. Would not God? I mean, how did I ever understand anything in my Bible when I was 20 years old and, and knew the books of the Bible and verses I learned in Awana, but really didn't know anything? Mm-hmm didn't know any doctrine, didn't know anything. And yet God meets you there. If I would do that to my child, will not he meet us right where we're at? If we just take him at his word and say, God, I I don't know. I want you to, will he not meet, you know, I, I mentioned the James, we draw nigh to God. He will draw an eye to us. I take that as a promise. Mm -hmm. He will. So what do I need to do? Because I, one of my maybe passions or interests or gifts, or I don't know how to describe it, I enjoyed the concept of discipleship. And how I understand discipleship is understanding the spectrum from somebody who is not a Christian or maybe is a, a new Christian to somebody who is a mature in ministry, there's that, and this is maybe education background bleeding in, but there's the scope and sequence where they're on this journey, on this spectrum. Well, discipleship is having awareness of where they're at and what's the next step for them. So this was one of the things we did in education with the charter school is we would have an, a, 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 it's called an adaptive assessment where they take a math assessment and it gives you problems. And if you get it right, it just gives you harder ones. It's not like the bubble test where you, it gives everybody the same questions. It's adaptive. So if you get it right, it'll give you a harder one. And it'll keep going till you get questions wrong. And then it'll back up and give it to you. You get them right, get it right, get it wrong. 
back up, get it right, get it right. Okay, here's where you're at. So here's your next step. This is what I was talking about with personalized education. So you can have a child, and it will isolate any steps that you missed along the way. So, like, you may be at a fifth-grade math level, but you missed place values in second grade. Well, you wouldn't know that, but this adaptive assessment will tell you you keep getting the place value question wrong. So we need to review place values. It doesn't mean you're at a second-grade level. Mm -hmm. It means there's a second-grade concept that you aren't getting, and you get that, and boom, now you're up to speed. And because math builds on itself, if you miss too many concepts, you're struggling with it. So it was really a cool, but then understanding that concept of where people are at, what's the next step for them? And if I can do that, how much more can our Heavenly Father meet us where we're at, know where we're at, know what our next step is, and break down that process? Um, is this, is this uh, sort of the approach that you take in your biblical counseling? Because I know from your background, you're involved uh, quite a lot in biblical counseling. Yes, um, well, because biblical counseling is another form of discipleship at mm -hmm. some level. Mm -hmm. You know, there's formative discipline and corrective discipline. Yeah. Formative is the discipleship side. Would you say that it's counseling is also a form of education? Yes, uh, I, I guess I think of it as, you know, some counseling, usually counseling starts because there's a need. Mm. There's a perceived need. There's an issue that they're, they acknowledge I need help on. And so as you diagnose that and deal with that, ideally you get some traction in it, and we get over the hump in that process, depending on what the issue is. But then it needs to continue, right? This is where their discipleship and their relationship with the Lord needs to grow. Well, where are they at? Do they understand the gospel or do they not understand the gospel? Do they understand, you know, where are they at in this journey? And so just like we take math and we don't lump every child from kindergarten to, to their senior year in one class and teach math, we break it up into, you know, understanding scope and sequence of where they're at in this journey and what would be a helpful next step. And if they have a positive next step and take it, then they realize, oh, this is, this is, I can do this. It's attainable. Um, and so that's, yeah, an aspect of counseling where you're trying to get them, you know, growing and maturing in Christ, not just dependent on you as a counselor. Mm. You want it to deal with the problem so that we can get to growing naturally. Um, it's kind of like going to the doctor if there's a, their growth is stunted. Let's figure out what's stunting the growth so that we can continue growing. You know, that's maybe for the soul and the spiritual yeah. life side of things. Yeah. Do you um do you sleep well at night? You're I mean, you're such a busy person. It sounds I like I sleep when I lay my head down on the pillow, you have about thirty seconds. <laughs> and I am gone. So you there's no like pillow talk with your wife. It's just that you is know, John's a out. that's a that's John's a out. sensitive topic. We have an ongoing debate because because one time she was talking to me, pillow talk. One time. One time. Yeah. And I said, "Honey, I'm 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 fading in and out. I'm going to sleep." And she was offended at that. 
like, you don't want to talk to me. This was early on in the marriage? Yes. Well, then very shortly after that, I'm talking to her, and she falls asleep. Oh. And so then it became an argument over oh. what was the appropriate way to handle that. I thought I was being considerate because I'm telling you I'm falling asleep so that you uh-huh. know uh-huh. or you just fell asleep. Yeah. So we, I don't know that we've resolved that yet. Um, but yeah, as far as sleep, um, it just sounds like I crash. You do a lot. And then I wake up and then I'm, I, I, I don't nap. I just burn. Pastor, uh, charter school president, you've got your counseling. Sounds like you've got a pretty busy uh, work or renovation kind mm-hmm. of stuff. You've, you've got some hobbies. Seminary, healthy, good stuff. What? Oh, yes, doing you're, you're doing some PRT. stuff at uh, PRTS yep. right now. Yeah, I mean, okay. you live in Geneva. You got to go down there and see how things are going, <laughs> right? Um, I would say I'm a generalist and not a specialist. Okay. So I am wired to dabble into a lot of things mm-hmm. where some people are more, Jonathan Beakey calls it lumpers and splitters. I'm a lumper. He's a splitter. Hmm. I'm not a detail person. Hmm. I don't get involved in a lot of things down at the minutia detail level. That's where seminary can be a little challenging. Um, so you'd rather like <clears throat> sand a floor than do the finishing work on the baseboards? I would rather demo something, <laughs> see things disappear. I'm not really somebody to build something, Yeah. but I can see what's wrong with it and fix it tear it out, redo it, put it back the way it was. Mm-hmm. But to build it from scratch, I couldn't do it. And so when it gets to that level, I better hire someone because you don't want me doing finish work. It's not pretty. So what's it like for you preparing a sermon then with that personality? It's it's probably the biggest struggle of my sermon preparation. In terms of like your ministry responsibilities, that would be kind of the, the real um, biggest Well, challenge. like I would, you know, I, I'm wired to prioritize mm-hmm. have a t- task oriented prioritize what's the first priority mm-hmm. you know family kids word ministry and then if there's room at the end of that then we can add other things yeah um but in sermon prep i was for years i would always till i once i knew what the text was the hermeneutics the interpretation i thought that was it <laughs> stop there I know what the text says. I can deliver that, teach that. The concept of homiletics, delivery, application, worship, that side does not come natural to me. Mm. So I get frustrated when I get to that point because I'm enjoying it, the commentaries, the text, and the meaning and the flow of thought, and what's it saying. Now I know what it means. I want to stop there, and I have to keep going until it goes from my head to my heart and to my hands. Mm. I will stop when it gets in my head and I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I'd say is my biggest frustration in sermon prep is I have to do that harder, less productively. You don't see things moving. Your light bulbs aren't going on. Meditation, heart work. And you know, my wife... We, we talked a little bit about being beers and doers. I'm a doer. She's a beer. You know, just be present. 
I always think of it in like doctrine, doxology, duty. I'm a very doctrine and duty, and she's doxology. She's the heart. I'm the doctrine and the duty. I go from what does it say to what do we do? And I skip that doxological aspect of it. Yeah. And so one time I was preaching through Philippians and wrestling with the text. I knew what it said, but after studying it for a couple of days, I just didn't have a blank sheet of paper. And so I thought, oh, I'll ask my wife, see what maybe she can springboard me into something. So I said, hey, honey, read this text and just tell me what comes to your mind. So she reads it and she starts crying. I'm like, what? <laughs> I've been in this text for three days. I haven't shed a single tear. You read one verse and you're crying. What? And that's mm-hmm. not fair, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but learning to cultivate that doxological, um, and then the duty. You know, I think that is some of what the you know Dr. Beakey talks about with the experiential preaching, not just the doctrinal. How do I experience and live this out? How does it affect my heart and my hands? Yep. And, yep. you know, like I said, I'm, I get up in the morning, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. It's, it's go time. Um, and so slowing down to marinate, slow cooker, meditate, get it into my heart. That's the struggle I have in sermon prep. I don't know if that was you know, kind of what you're asking, but that's... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, one, one thing I appreciated, I, I heard you preach, I think it was a year ago, and one thing I appreciated about it, and maybe this is a way you've tried to address this missing or kind of latent doxology piece, is you, you quoted some other authors to great effect, mm-hmm. and it seemed like you've, you've said a few times throughout our discussion that you're a guy of uh, sayings. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, my teachers used to keep track of my sayings. Yeah. Because I grab a hold of a quote, yeah. internalize it, and then they would keep a log of it, you know, these quirky it, sayings. It reminds me of um, things I've heard about Tim Keller as one example. Yeah. He would read so widely, but good, good material. Yeah. And a lot of that was a search for yeah. these this type of thing. Like, how can I how can I find things that help these people connect right to the more like technical work that I've done in my study? You yeah, know, we call it like bridging the gap or whatever. But there's yeah, I, I I'm familiar with Keller. I haven't, but I have thought a lot recently that, especially with his passing recently, that he's someone I can relate fairly well to. They always say that he is an assimilator, mm-hmm. uh, kind of what you were describing, that yes, he was uh, theoretical, but he was also a pastor. Yeah. And I think that I, I'm not by nature pastoral, but I love the local church. Mm-hmm. I always want to take my bent from doctrine to duty is it's got to help the average church member, or why are we doing this? Um and so I always have that bent or to make this practical or useful or what do we do with it. Um, like I, I, so I appreciate it, even though I don't theologically, we have a lot of 
areas, but I just sure. think the way we're wired a little yeah. bit. Yeah. My bent is is let's let's take this concept and let's make it feed the people, mm-hmm. or or they can ex- access it and use it, and it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, but then still have to get that doxological piece in there, or it can yeah. come across as, well, just man up. This is what God says. Now go do it. Yeah. Well, that's. That works for me, you know, <laughs> at a certain level. And I, I have to, you know, kind of realize that not everybody's wired that way. I don't want to be overwhelming. Um, yeah. I mean, praise the Lord that, like, seriously, praise the Lord that we have such um, such a wealth of men who who have been called into the ministry and are performing that duty well. And yet... I really like your your schema of those three things the um the doctrine doxology and duty mm-hmm. because if I think just as you've been speaking I've been running through my head of some some guys we all know quite well whether it's Piper mm-hmm. Keller Washer Duncan Beaky and the list goes on right mm-hmm. and all these I'm just using those as examples because I know there are men in local churches who we don't know about mm-hmm. who are also doing a, a phenomenal work for the Lord. But if we assessed all of these, let's yeah. call them the the bigger names, mm-hmm. on that triad, mm-hmm. they're all falling short yeah. in one, at least one of those areas. And yet in another area, they're excelling. And I would say, yes, I would say by nature, but I would mm-hmm. say they have all learned to cultivate the mm-hmm. other lacking aspect. Mm-hmm. Where I came up, I didn't come up, I didn't originate, I don't originate much of anything. <laughs> I just hear, I heard that at a conference, uh, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology it came out on the West Coast, um, and there was like, you know, this huge conference, big names, Joel Beakey, Al Martin, Richard Phillips, you know, all these big hitters, and there was like 20 people there. Really? It was just this real weird thing. You're on, you're in the Pacific Northwest. This is not. <laughs> you're not in Kansas anymore. Well, anyway, at that conference, Al Martin mentioned that doctrine, doxology, duty, mm. and that I just like that made perfect sense to me. That what is lacking in my life, I see it. Um, and that was 15 years ago, probably. And God used that conference in great ways. It just wasn't wasn't a big you know, a lot of empty chairs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Variety of reasons why, but, um, and so I, I have, in looking at that, I think balance is so important for health. I love Dever and his healthy church. What is health? I was early in my life involved with um, fertilizer and soils, and. You know, you buy fertilizer and it has nitrogen, phos- potassium, and phos- phosphorus, potassium. Those are the three numbers. And if your soil gets out of balance, it won't grow. So you have to amend the soil and bring it back into a balance. God made things in balance. And, you know, if you look at the guys, the heavy hitters, the big names that we see, they have the balance of those three. They don't, by nature, typically have all of them, but they've cultivated them. Mm. You know, for example, you take a guy like Joel Vicky. You know, that guy has forgotten more about the Bible than I've ever read. 
you know, he's a reader, he's a machine. But what has been the emphasis of much of his ministry? The experiential preaching. The other sides of this. So it's balanced all that weight of the Puritans and all that doctrine and substance. It's got to be experiential. And if it doesn't get there, it's just knowledge puffs up. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it's out of balance, out of order. So you know, I've, I've spent time kind of thinking through different guys, like you mentioned, and how they, they learn to cultivate this, this balance. Uh, whether they don't come by it. I don't think anybody's the total package by nature, but this is where part of discipleship is assessing like what's missing, what what is what is hindering here, and you know trying to, and I, I think God providentially often works in our life to bring that balance. Mm-hmm. He brings people and circumstances into our life to teach us that if you're going to get over there, you got to learn this. You hit this wall. So, like I said, that that has just stuck with me for a number of years. Um, I think Calvin even has has alluded to that triad at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, somebody bought me a book because they knew I loved that. But I think even the New Testament's written that way. If you look at the letters of the Apostle Paul, he starts out with a doctrinal foundation, the Ephesians. He lays out predestination. He gets to the end of Ephesians 3, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen. A doxological statement. Mm-hmm. Chapter 4, now I beseech you, walk worthy of the call and vocation wherewith you've been called. Live that out. Now here's your duty. Mm-hmm. Based, and they're all connected. Yeah. If you go to Romans, the same thing, doctrine, all the way up to the end of 11. You know, for of him and through him and to him are all, you know, this doxological. Now Romans 12, Mm -hmm. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, you present your body a living sacrifice. So the duty, here's how you live that out. So I I think it's a biblical uh, concept that, yeah, has, I've tried to imbibe and flesh out even in preaching at some level. It's kind of something I say, well, my... I usually don't have to wonder what I'm short on, mm-hmm. you know. But trying it's to so cultivate the doxological yeah. worship aspect, yeah. you know, because there's word, and then there's worship, and there's work. There's mm-hmm. head. There's heart. There's hands. There's mm-hmm. these concepts that work themselves out. So I definitely fall short in the duty. Mm-hmm. So when I when I prepared sermons, uh, yeah. I, I I focus mostly on doctrine and doxology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never thought about that actually. Yeah, I just thought. Well, I went to master seminary, mm-hmm. and John MacArthur put mm-hmm. a huge emphasis on. Um, this isn't the fault him at all, but yeah. on the first two. Yeah, he doc- he kind of avoided that last one. Like the duty one the was kind of like the Holy job. Spirit's right. That's exactly right. yeah. Without totally dismissing it. And so that's just the way that I was trained, I suppose. But uh, Or not just that, but pers- my personality too goes... Well, this is where I, I just took a summer class intensive with uh, Brian Chapel at Puritan on Christ-Centered Applicational Preaching. Yeah, he was sitting in that chair a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think he mentioned that in the class. 
but he his fallen condition focus mm. that principle that in the text what is the fallen condition that we all share that this text is speaking to mm-hmm. so that it because when you think about application it's very easy okay we got this high doctrine and we're worshiping god and now i'm going to break this down and i'm going to cut and paste on some be a better husband you know go do this right or and the classic not, like so maybe you're struggling with this yeah or right maybe this or maybe this and i'm always sitting there like well no i'm not like, right that's not me you know and maybe once in a hundred it's like oh, okay yeah right so i find that to be quite it's inorganic it's not it's not um intrinsic to the word but if you look at the text and say what is the fallen condition mm. focus of this text that everyone sitting there then it's shares. intrinsic yeah. to the text mm. and you're high you have to identify that and then you're preaching to that focus so it's not tagging it out at the end mm. it's embedded in organically into the message from the very beginning. So you can actually then lace that throughout the message instead of saving right. it for the end. Right. And now let's pray and see you. Right. Hmm. And that's the principle that I really gleaned from him is, you know, it, it, this is what the audience he was preaching to in their fallen condition they're struggling with, which is why this is the solution to that. Hmm. So, you know, Diagnosing that and getting rightly dividing that is important. But if you do that, then it's not, like I said, that cut and paste at the end. Yeah. Where everybody tunes you out and, you yeah. know, like, oh, yeah, here's where he's going to go, give his whatevers. <laughs> so, yeah, in developing as a preacher and growing where that becomes more natural, I think that is one of the things that differentiates. Um, some people obviously just master that, and they mm-hmm. maybe don't use the terminology, but uh, I feel like that was something that, because it doesn't come natural, helped me. And I, not that I've, I mean, I'm still, I have to consciously, it's not a subconscious thing in preparing a sermon. I have to consciously think on my notes, what is the FCF, the fallen condition focus that this text is addressing? Yeah. And I have to start that crockpot a lot earlier to simmer on it, or else it comes across as cut and paste. Mm, that's some that's some gold there. Next time I preach, that's I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why FCF. That's why having Puritan right here is such a gold mine. You know, to take yeah. a class like that with somebody. I wanted to ask you about the. So you you've come back to Michigan now. Your home state, correct? Yeah. Yes. And we've we've talked earlier about this. Um, it's a generalization, but kind of the Oregonian uh, autonomy mm-hmm. that kind of is is pervasive or prevalent there. What what have you observed? Because I'm not from Michigan. Mm-hmm. I'm actually from LA. Okay. So I, I see some of that. I'll same. pray for you. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I'm here now, so yeah. it's a bit better. You made it. <laughs> yeah. And we were in England for 10 years, so that's a whole other story. So, uh, cultural story. What is it about Grand Rapids, but I guess kind of in general Michigan, or a Midwest mindset, how is it different in a ministry context from what you described experiencing in Oregon? Um, Yeah. Is it harder to see it because you're from here? Probably. Yeah. Um, Leaving and coming back, 
Yeah, you can see certain things. I think um, some things, you know, Midwest sensibilities. Um, in Oregon, the autonomy, people's time is very, it's theirs. So if you make a request or a burden upon their time, that is a, that's an ask. Hmm. Um, you know, especially if you're running your own company, you have a family business and you're tied to this and you're asking me to make a commitment of time to something else. Whereas in Michigan, I think, you know, I grew up not in Grand Rapids. I grew up mid-Michigan between Lansing and Flint. Most of my friends, we everybody's parents worked for one of the big three or some subsidiary supplier to the big three auto workers, assembly line, you know, nine to five, you know, first, second, third shift, whatever. But but you get in line of a big machine and you do your part and you contribute. Mm. And I think that carries over to the church mm. is that people have a sense. Grand Rapids is a little different dynamic. Um, some of the culture, I notice some differences because I'm not from that area where, you know, you get in line and you do your duty. You This is your, you know, this is what church life looks like. Uh, you're faithful. You you come to the, each of the services, you, you know, serve, whatever. And so it, in some ways it made church life easier um, because there's more of, there's a initiative there to get be a part of it. Um, for example, our church is doing a VBS this week, and, and God bless the number of people and volunteers five nights a week, um, everything from craft to snacks to... They're doing a Pilgrim's Progress play, kind of cool. learning parts and acting it out and and picking them up in the van and just 50 workers working in various roles five nights a week for several hours and, you know, doing it well and planning it for months. And to pull something like that off in Oregon would have been an act of Congress to get that level of buy-in, commitment, involvement to what we're doing. Um, so in that way, it, it is a positive to me. I just saw church life, because as I mentioned, membership was such a issue. Hard to get momentum if you can't even establish who's in and who's out. What are we doing? Let's get to work together to, you know, I was involved in, initially it was a church plant situation, and then the second time it was more of a revitalization situation. But in both of them, there's no momentum, and you're trying to get momentum. But we can't agree on anything, you know, or very few things. And we want everybody's opinion is equal, you know, and even if you don't know the books of the Bible, your opinion's equal. It just is very hard. You know, Oregon is the least church state in the union per capita. We were, the second time, we were in the least church county in the least church state with the least church city per capita in Eugene. Um, my kids noticed, little kids noticed 
like when we moved back to Michigan, Dad, I counted eight churches since we got off the expressway. <laughs> like yeah. growing up in Oregon, they had no conception of another church of any stripe. The, the churches that were there were universalist, mm-hmm. you know, openly hostile to the gospel and all things, you know, LGBTQ and you name it. Um, so just a, a very, you know, mission field. So I went out there kind of with a Michigan mindset, how we're going to do things. And I would set things up and nobody would show up. You know, and you got to process that as a leader, as a man, yeah. as, yeah. you know, whatever is like nobody. They're all for it. We're against it. So it wasn't like a, we don't think that's right. It's that that's an ask. And I had no conception, like the first year I was there to do some evangelism or outreach or something, and had a group even from Michigan come out, and nobody from the church showed up. That must have been incredibly disheartening, especially if you went out there without this understanding of the Oregonian mindset. And it was hard initially, relationally, my wife's a very family, mm. relational person. And it was Sunday when service was over. That was, you see him next Sunday. And so there was just the concept of relational. Like we would have, I, I tell the story of, we had two different instances where somebody would have a 40th birthday party or you know, some anniversary party. And we would say, well, let, we want to throw a party. Like who else can we invite? Like, who are your friends outside of the church? Nobody. Hmm. And you're like, what? Like, you don't have any acquaintances or family or neighbors? Nobody? Nope. Uh, and, and it was just striking. Like, And like I said, it happened on more than one occasion where you're like, the realization, these people don't have friends. Wow. Outside of their little bubble, their fam- immediate family, even with their extended, you know, they just, and that was very strange um, to, to see that. But the conclusion I came to, right or wrong, is that, you know, friendships are expensive. They require time and effort. You, yeah. you have to invest in other people of yourself. And so in the concept of planting a church, discipleship, it just makes that very hard, hard ground to plow up culturally when that's just not, and it, like I said, it resonates. So out there was where the initial movements of this, you know, non-denominational, no membership, fellowship, just a thousand people, four services on a Sunday morning, nobody knows anybody. Come as you want. It's kind of where it got its seedbed. Um, it was very big in Oregon. Uh, that was most of the church life. So very little of uh, the concept of church membership was just entirely foreign to them. This was the plant or the second time? Both. Yeah. Both. It was, uh, you know, the second time was a little different because it was a revitalization. It was older people. Um, that were in the, the church, they had a membership, but 
even that was a little like that's just kind of a formality. Mm. That's not really a thing. Mm-hmm. You don't really, you know, and they're good people. I mean, it's not, you know, it's just the culture. They don't realize it because, you know, that's all they've ever known. Yeah. And you're coming in with this very foreign idea. Um, was that was that the only kind of new concept, this like, or for, for these people, at least, church membership? Or were there other things, too, that were, was kind of going against the grain for them? Um, that seemed to be the main pressure point or obstacle, like I said, to just even getting something off the ground to get buy-in. Um, theologically, there I didn't encounter anything that had this repeated, you know. But like I said, I, I'm not exaggerating with every single person that ever came to the church. That was an issue. Um, maybe I'm on an island and in my own little world, but like I had a really good friend who was converted, uh, and. He wanted to take me out to lunch one day. He's faithful to the church, he'd give. And he said, I got a question for you, John. He said, Would you baptize me without me having to become a member of the church? <laughs> what a question. And I, I thought about it for a minute and I said, Well, I said, That to me, that sounds like would you marry us and do a wedding ceremony, but we don't want to be married afterward? Hmm. That's what it seems like to me. Hmm. And I said, I, I don't think I can do that. I, I can't separate those two in my theology. Hmm. And he was okay with it. You know, he, I kind of thought that might be what you'd say. And we were friends and, you know, hunting buddies, fishing buddies, church. He would be involved in a great church, you know, would, would do what a member did just without that accountability i had another guy who was a super guy i mean older gentleman great christian always just looking to help uniquely so he's a little bit older he's an engineer always very helpful in the church at every level but he couldn't embrace the concept of church membership he they had read some books of how that was unbiblical and um, and he came to me, and he was really trying to work through it. And I just can't see it. And so I said, well, I said, Chuck, I said, you know, there's a within in 1 Corinthians 5, and there's a without. Who's within and who's without? I'm responsible for those who are within. I'm not responsible for those who are without. How would you draw that line? He's a very thoughtful, contemplative guy. I'll think about that, but just couldn't. Hmm. I mean, when I when I left, that was the first church I was in. He would come out to the house and help and do things, and I I had a I told him before I announced it publicly to the church that I was planning to leave. And and he he sat down. And he said, John. I don't think when I heard my mother died that it hit me as hard as what you just said. 
Like yeah, that just that just took the wind out of you know, hard conversation to have. But I knew he we were. Cl- so my point is, is we were close. Like this wasn't like fringe people. These are like people who are endeared to you. And then you'd even talk about something that most people, in my experience, that was just a given. Like that was just the, he never joined the church. Just couldn't get over that piece. So like I said, that that's why in that type of work, going back out there the second time, I, there was no illusions of what this was going to be. Mm. This is going to be hard ground that's going to require plowing up and you know, just a significant challenge. And it just makes so much of pastoral life. While I was out there, there was a, a group that uh, wanted to plant a church, and they wanted me to be involved with it because we lived outside of Eugene in a small kind of bedroom community. And and they there was a group of, of four other guys who were theologically, you know, in the same vein. And so... They said, "Well, we want to have a meeting, and let's talk about this." I said, "Okay, I'll, I'm, you know, I'll give it a go. I'm skeptical, but I'll, I'll give it a go." So we sat down and, and met. And I said, "Well, I think maybe the first step would be to establish our non-negotiables." Mm-hmm. And so I'm coming to this thinking I know what my one. <laughs> I mean, obviously the deity of Christ, the gospel, those are given, but like apart from that. You know, if you're doing theological triage, there's tier one gospel issues, but now we got to deal with church-related issues. Sure. And so one or two of the guys, their number one thing, and I, I purposely didn't go first, is no membership. Hmm. That was like the first non-negotiable ask is we don't want membership. That's very interesting. Uh, and I'm like, they well... That's that's my number one yeah. non-negotiable. Yeah. And that was the only... I mean, these are men I enjoy, appreciate, yeah. friends with, small community, a lot in common, uh, you know, but we just... What is the hang-up? To me, I think it's the autonomy. So it's not... And I'm subjecting myself to an authority okay. that can speak into my life, you know, not like... I mean, we didn't do anything. <laughs> we weren't like a cult that were asking mm-hmm. these ridiculous, mm-hmm. extraordinary things of anyone. But just conceptually, that was just a just a lockup. So, like I said, that was what stood out to me. There may be other, different, better, more, whatever. Um, and you know, some of it there's pockets, but you know, that was just a strong, strong issue. Um, that we faced, and I think the culture of what the church had been for the last decades had bled into that, fed mm-hmm. that a little bit. Mm-hmm. That their definition of what Christianity was didn't include that. Yeah, yeah. So there wasn't really a, a strong uh, Reformed evangelical presence, and the ones that did, you know. And ironically, one of the guys who attended a, a university fellowship, solid church, good church they taught on membership like two weeks later. And so this guy who was, really all of them disagreed on this you know, issue. But then he came back to me, he's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, 
this larger church, this guy who's he might actually know what he's doing and he's teaching this. Mm -hmm. So so there's good guys, but it was just, you know, it was yeah. like the strange where did this come from? Type yeah. of thing. Perhaps there's a big element of just ignorance of theologically unchurched. There's not a church Christian what it influence means, culture. What church membership actually means. Yeah. And I suppose too, which Maybe we'll get into this the next time you come by. Is um, the benefits of church membership? Yeah. So there's there's all different. You know, there's that theological or doctrinal argument, but also the 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 practical yeah. uh, one as well. It's interesting how our conversation has has really revolved around how I think we opened it, which is this discussion of authority. Mm -hmm. And I like that we've touched on that um, that concept of authority in the home. You know, I loved hearing about how you put your kids to work. It's good to know those other They guys. don't love it, but <laughs> someday. They're not someday. supposed to, you know. Yeah, someday. We, my wife and I talk about it in the sense of, hey, you know, you guys don't like it now. Right. But, um, you know, we, if we make it hard for you now, in, mm -hmm. a, in a in a reasonable way, yeah. Um, in terms of like you don't sweat, exasperate sweat them. hard, right. yeah. Then um, it'll be easy, easier for you later, actually. Yeah. Um, I remember when I went to boot camp, it it wasn't that hard because yeah. my dad, my uncles, my grandpa, like they put me to they, they put me to work, and they yeah. so mentally it was like okay. Well, my wife has a saying that she coined years ago. Just because work is hard doesn't mean it's hard work. Mm. Just the concept of work mm. could be hard for you. Mm. But if you get over that hump and realize I'm going to have to work, well, then it's not as hard. Mm -hmm. But if just the concept of work is hard for you, I think this is some of the prosperity of our nation. That we've enjoyed things that have come so easy. We haven't learned that discipline and that that work and you know my wife when i have a, a son who just graduated he gets up at 5 30 and has to be to work at 6 30 and he makes breakfast eggs and bacon because i'm going to be working all day it's a manual labor so i need some protein and and then pack my lunch because i don't want to have to buy it because that's expensive and mm -hmm. you know learning some concepts mm -hmm. and my you know my wife must have saw my permagrin because She's like, you love it when your sons are up and out the door working before yeah. you even get out of bed, don't you? <laughs> I said, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. I, I just, you know, um, want them to be able to work because, like I said, if you opportunity is everywhere. If you are willing to put some sweat equity into it, yeah, and yeah. just put your shoulder to it and chip away at it and work at it, um, I just God rewards that. You know, yeah. at some level. I heard my uh, my thirteen year old this morning cracking raw eggs into his smoothie after coming back from a uh, the high school puts on like a workout program for the mm -hmm. athletes, and I I didn't tell him to do it. I just heard, you know, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, there yeah. we go. Yeah. And of course, I walked him through that a few times beforehand. Yeah, but it was just seeing him take the initiative. Yeah, and well, like that's, uh, that's a important word is that initiative yeah if you just see oh something needs to be done here that's right or but also f 
being like, hey, maybe my dad's right about the fact that yeah. eat, putting eggs in my smoothie is, is good instead of just you know, chocolate or whatever. Yeah, and, and just, you know, as a dad, just trying not, as the Bible is so good, it keeps it gives us little little snippets, like don't exasperate your children. Yeah. Don't provoke them to wrath. Yeah. You know, and I can I can press that boundary, mm-hmm. you know, as I don't want to be a drill sergeant, but yeah, I do, you know. Yeah. Make your bed to the glory of God, mm-hmm. you know. Again, but balance. Like my kids before. will laugh because, you know, I, I can be sarcastic quite and I'll come in with their rooms of mess and now oh, glory to God, look at this. Isn't this beautiful? You know. But then when they do something well, I want to be able to come in and say, Glory to God. You can glorify God mm. by how you made your bed, and he will be pleased with it. Mm. And you can organize your shoes in your closet and to the glory of God. What a great concept, you know, to embrace that, you know, in all of my life, I can glorify God in this. You know, and they love nothing more than to, you know, point out dad's mess. <laughs> you know, is God glorified in this, dad? You know, yeah. which I, I will gladly, if it's not done in the wrong spirit, gladly sacrifice and allow a little pushback to get a laugh so we can acknowledge the concept. Yeah, it works for me too. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's the relationship happening. Yeah. Which we also talked about. Yeah, just trying to be a real person. Yeah. Um, John, I'm really glad you came by. Yeah. David Woolen suggested you that yeah. I reach out to you. And I'm glad he did because uh, I'd, I'd forgotten that I'd seen you preach about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I, I, I didn't really know anything about you except that you uh, had been in Oregon, mm-hmm. you were a big hunter, and you have 12 kids, yeah. which... Everyone wants to comment yeah. on, yeah. Full speed ahead. Well, I, you're local, so I'd love to have you back sometime. But sure. um, for those listening, whether they're in the area or not, where can they either come hear you preach or find out more about your school? Or are you are you on any 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 other places that you want to mention? Whether it's websites or links. Or... Grace Emanuel Reformed Baptist Church, elder there. Um, do some biblical. I'm a generalist, even in that role. So I preach 20% of the time. My fellow elder Jeff Johnson preaches 66% of the time, and then we divide it up with the other elders for the other 13, which I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend time in discipleship and counseling and pastoral, and I kind of like I'm a generalist. You know, me doing the same thing every day, the grind. Um, the school is actually still in Oregon, so I do that type okay. of thing remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, because I started the school from the ground up, I understand the inner workings of everything and mm-hmm. design them and set them up. So it's more of a consultant type of role. What's the name of the school? Uh, Bridge Charter Academy. It's it, Eugene area? It's in Lowell, Oregon, which is the Eugene area. The other one... The first one we started was uh, Logos mm-hmm. uh, Charter School in Medford area. And, yeah, and didn't really have any intentions of getting into all that. That's a whole other story of providential doors opening, you know. Um, I didn't even know what a charter school was. Um, 
and God just opened door after door after door. Well, I guess we're going to start church school. Um, so yeah, it was not a plan. Um, it's a lot easier when God's just in things from the beginning to just go along for the ride mm. than to trudge uphill doing your own thing. And uh, yeah, that's why even going out to do it a second time because the first one took off and you know, I think we were three years into it and 900 kids. I didn't have any aspiration of that. I was praying for 200, you know, and, you know, and so my wife, we had even talked about moving to Grand Rapids before we did. She's like, well, let's just go start a charter school in Grand Rapids. I'm like, honey, it doesn't just work like that. I don't just snap my fingers and it's just all done. Well, you've done two of them. Well, <laughs> but it was the you know leading of God to help me. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I learned more even in the second one and changed some things and did some things differently. Yeah. But, um, you know, praise the Lord. Well, I, I'd love to have you back in again, and we could probably focus on the charter schools because that's yeah. I know that's something that's very interesting to people. Yeah. Well, has been for the past maybe decade or two, but especially, I think, um, especially now. I yeah, well, just, it was such a, like, because of such a low number of Christians, a Christian pure Christian traditional school was going to, it was a, they were dying out there mm -hmm. when I got out there. There's a man in our church here in Grand Rapids who was actually worked at a Christian school um, in the eighties. He was the transportation director and he was telling me just recently that their enrollment went from like 900 to a thousand or a thousand to 250 in like one or two years when the recession hit the cost, and it just decimated, you know. And these are in bigger city, Portland area. But um, anyway, it's a unique demographic there to try yeah. to generate momentum. And here you may have the other problem where there's competition from already established right Christian schools, and so many of right. them, a lot of homeschoolers. Yep. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's a it's its own yeah thing. Thanks, John. My pleasure. Really, really good to have you here. Thank you, Tavis. All right. Thanks, everyone.